Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Today on Accent of Women, we continue our coverage of the Socialism 2022 conference held in September 2022 in Chicago, where Dr. Liet Ben-Moisha gave a talk titled Disability Madness Liberation, Deinstitutionalization and Prison Abolition. Prison abolition and massive decarceration are often portrayed as utopian ideals, but few have grappled with the fact that it's already happened. The history of the deinstitutionalisation movement from psychiatric hospitals and residential institutions shows the limits of rights and legal discourses, as well as hope for abolition of carcerality in our time. Today's episode of Accent of Women concludes Dr. Leah Ben-Moisha's keynote address on the intersections of disability, justice and prison abolition. So in order to understand the resistance to closure of carceral um, places, it's important to understand the differences and similarities between employees who work in these spaces. So according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics for Illinois, just as an example, correctional officers make an average of $27 um, an hour, while home health aides, psychiatric aides, uh, nursing assistants, orderlies make between 11 and 14 an hour. So this is not the same. Um, the stakes are not the same in these two facilities. The benefit for keeping institutions and prisons open is, of course, economic, but there's a lot of difference, especially in terms of race, ethnicity, and gender, as well as pay rate in terms of employees. In addition, the discussion about unions um, and their resistance to closure of carceral spaces often paints the working class in very masculine terms. You know, we've seen uh, in our heads guards, um, prison guards, um, union leaders. And although that is not true to all carceral facilities, um, the, um, and, and this is, again, this is not true to all carceral facilities if we add disability institutions into the mix. It's of course true that in penal facilities, uh, meaning prisons, these are mostly white and masculine. Even if the job is held by women, the jobs are still masculine jobs. Um, the case in disability settings today is almost the mirror image of that because most workers are women uh, and of color, a lot of uh, migrant workers, and the job is very feminine because you're supposed to care, right? So this is a nurturing kind of job. So I think we, my point is to uh, we have to think coalitionally about these spaces, but we have to understand the differences as organizers in order to really, when we talk about the union resistance, who is the union, what do they represent, and what are the workers also beyond the union, uh, what is the workers, because the unions don't always represent uh, the workers, um, you know, what, um, who are the workers in these facilities. And especially with the institutionalization, a lot of disability support staff now works primarily in the private sectors for companies that hire them to work directly in the homes of disabled people. So the question for unions and to workers who care is how to respond to the changing economic and social realities of deinstitutionalization, for example, in ways that get their economic and emotional needs met without holding on to either defunct industries um, or uh, in any industry that's really morally bankrupt um, and more, uh, warehouses people 
for care or profit or both. Um, and in this case, it doesn't matter if it's care or profit um, or both. So, and the, the other thing I want to say is that alternatives to incarceration and useful home care responses also have to be feminist because the people who do this care work, of course, are uh, feminized, uh, are women, uh, people who do this care work now for people with disabilities are often family members of people with disabilities post, um, I, I wouldn't say we're in post deinstitutionalization. by the way, Illinois is very worst in the, um, one of the worst states in decarcerating and closing down facilities for people with disabilities. Um, there's, anyway, we can talk later about that, but um, it's really one of the worst. But in places where there was a big kind of move to deinstitutionalize, a lot of people now live with their family members. And I'm sure you can understand that it's mostly either mothers or siblings that uh, do the care work and of course are not paid um, to do that as care work goes. Um, but I wanted to end with an example and then move to another, um, and then move towards like more conclusionary stuff like take home lessons. In 2012, when the governor of Illinois announced this potential closure that I was describing earlier, um, he also talked about the closure of TAMS, um, the supermax prison in Illinois. And at that time, mothers of people who were incarcerated in TAMS marched to AFSCME quarters in Chicago carrying signs stating, I am a mom and my son is not a paycheck. These signs alluded, of course, to placards um, held by sanitation workers, um, black men who worked in Memphis um, in 1968, which is the last protest Martin Luther King Jr. participated in that said, um, right, I mean, they're saying, I'm a mom. The, those uh, placards said, I am a man. This was an attempt to utilize the trope of motherhood to bring um, to light another quote unquote, the civil rights issue of our time, which is mass incarceration and its relation to racism and to capitalism. My son is not a paycheck. By the powerful use of these uh, gendered uh, dynamics of motherhood, the protesters tried to show AFSCME as the guards union that it was on the wrong side of history. But in the institutional arena, this is much more complex. This is what I was alluding to earlier. There are a lot of parents um, a lot of them are mothers, uh, but parents in general, that really use the notion of rights and choice to talk about how their kids need to stay in institutions. And um, I want to say that we have to think about this structurally. Uh, choice became a prominent idea. Choice is not a neutral term. It became a prominent idea in a neoliberal context. At the same time that resources to housing, welfare, healthcare, were eroding. So people are made to fight over intentionally depleting resources. Constructing services based on a market economy through this idea of choice, in theory means that people with disabilities and their uh, family would be able to select the best course of action for um, the person. And this is what in disability worlds is called the continuum. The continuum approach means that uh, people with disabilities should be able to live um, in a less restrictive setting and more restrictive settings. So for people with high needs, they would be able to um, be in uh, institutions. For people who um, have lesser needs, they should live in community 
uh, or can live in community um, in the community with supports. And in between, there's like nursing homes and um, uh, boarding homes and group homes and all of those things. So this is the idea, and this has been a policy in the disability world since the 60s. It's called the continuum or the less restrictive environment, um, if you ever encounter that. So the problem with that um, approach is that it validates incarceration as a morally valid choice. It's just one choice out of many. You can either incarcerate somebody or they can live you know, in the community and you choose as if it's a choice at all, especially when, um, especially when living in the community with support is not actually given to people as a quote unquote choice. So I'm not trying at all to vilify parents. I'm just saying that it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> it's a capitalistic Ponzi scheme. Um, and unfortunately, people use the language of choice. There is no choice. But the whole notion of continuing makes it appear as if, if, as if somehow there is. So what are some lessons now? Um, I told you some stories. Uh, what are some lessons that we can learn from deinstitutionalization about abolition specifically? So first of all is a lesson I think which is really important around who can be decarcerated. Some of the most pervasive arguments against deinstitutionalization and prison abolition is the widespread belief that certain people are always going to need some kind of segregation. They're always going to need to be restrained. Um, some people, um, you know, with quote unquote high support needs um, are going to need, be need to, um, they cannot live in the community. I'm just voicing what people say. They cannot live in the community. Some people um, should not be outside of prisons. But what deinstitutionalization shows us is that I analyze in a lot of uh, my work that deinstitutionalization didn't become abolitionary until it kind of went all the way, until it was non-reformist, meaning um, until people, including disabled, uh, disabled people, mad people, their families, experts, said no more, no continuum, no less restrictive environment, where housing people is morally bankrupt, close them all. And when that happened, this is when deinstitutionalization became abolitionary. So not all forms of deinstitutionalization are abolitionary, but I think this is the lesson. This cannot be a choice. If, if we say some people need, it's a ch it, it makes it look viable and like it is just one choice out of many, but it is not. Genocide is not a choice. Incarcerating people, caging people, not a choice, should never be. So the question most often um, talked about particularly for those who critique abolition, um, is about people who have the most challenging or dangerous quote-unquote behaviors. And in prison, prison abolition, this is called um, what to do with the dangerous few. Maybe you've heard about it, right? Like a lot of people say, well, let's you know, decarcerate, uh, of course, people with um, drug offenses, uh, blah, 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 but surely there'll be people who uh, have to be uh, incarcerated, right? The serial killer, serial rapist. What do we do with those? Um, and and I'm, I'm using that language also because, you know, I teach and that's really like the first thing that the students kind of raise their hands like, what about the serial killers? Um, so, I, you know, I don't want to kind of divert that question. 
But I just want to say that this is also happens in the realm of disability when people talk about what about the people who with the most significant or profound disabilities. So I see kind of like a mirror um, question here. In both cases, the general assumption uh, is that these are the population that will need that will not be able to kind of make it on the outside. Uh, and therefore will always require some sort of segregation and restraint, either for their own good or for the public's good. But through the lens of abolition, or what I was telling you earlier, what I call a crip or mad of color critique or disability justice, we can use this question to develop what Angela Davis called a very different social landscape of a non-carceral society. In other words, um, to me, the question of the dangerous few in regards to um, uh, the question of deindustrialization, for example, was to start from the quote-unquote dangerous few. So a lot of uh, institutions that closed down uh, in the arena of intellectual and developmental disabilities, for example, started with the people with the quote-unquote most profound needs. And I mean like really like medical needs, people who you said they will always live in some kind of you know, hospital environment. Um, people who have complex you know, behavioral um, needs and so on. But if you start the work of abolition and decarceration from that, then it's very easy to then decarcerate people that have less needs, um, needs for support, medical needs, and so on. So this, I think, is a very profound thing for, um, for us to understand uh, abolition. Because the current focus, unfortunately, especially in criminal justice reform, is on what people call the non-non-nons, right? The non-violent offenders, non-serious offenders. I'm using the word offender because that's the system word. Um, the non-sexual offenders. Like, yes, of course, let's decriminalize uh, marijuana. Uh, maybe decriminalize all drugs. Why are we so progressive? This is amazing. Um, but we don't actually go to the question of, you know, what are what about people with actual, you know, real challenging like behaviors? And I think that this is a big lesson from deindustrialization is that we have to start there. And I think this is also the core of feminist thinking. This is the core of Black Lives Matter, right? In order for Black Lives Matter, um, um, trans Black Lives need to matter and so on and so on. You always start from the most marginalized. I mean, this is how liberation happens. I think this also eschews the question of violence because um, the focus on the non-non-nons masks the violence of the state and lets state apparatuses define what violence means. So, you know, if you spit on a guard in, in a prison, that's violence, but incarceration is not. Um, and that is incredibly problematic. And so, as abolitionists say, um, you know, the, the real serial killer is the state. And I think the, the dangerous few question is completely askews um, the, the analysis and what we're talking about. So I promised that I would end, I could go on and on talking about other lessons of deindustrialization, but I promised that I would end a little bit with now. Um, and this is kind of my conclusion. And what is now meaning, you know, I mean, in the US, we are in an era of um, deindustrialization. Deindustrialization is not a failure. It actually succeeded. It did not lead to um, you know, the rise of incarceration or not in a kind of one-to-one one -one, um, situation. 
Um, again, a lot of states, including Illinois, did not decarcerate as much as we would like them to. But we, you know, we live in a kind of a little bit of a different political economy and social landscape. So what happens now? Well, uh, unfortunately, um, I want to give some examples of how uh, the political econ about the political economy of not incarceration but decarceration. What does it look like now? In 2015, um, American Friends Service Committee with grassroots leadership authored a report called the Treatment Industrial Complex. This is where we're now. We're not just in the institutional industrial complex, we're not just in the prison industrial complex, I think, I think we're in the treatment industrial complex. Um, by the way, just a footnote, people wanna talk in Chicago about this treatment not trauma thing, please think about the treatment industrial complex that's all I'm going to say for now. We can talk more in the Q&A. But the treatment industrial complex shows the shift on the part of the inc incarceration industry into areas like mental health care. And basically what we call alternatives to incarceration. So for example, GEO, which is of course the second largest private prison company in the US, created a subsidiary called GEO Care. Yes, they did. Um, which provides mental health services in prison, in addition to operating state psychiatric hospital that, has, that have forensic units. And of course the irony of a for-profit company providing mental health services to counter the disabling effects of its own prisons um, should not be lost to anybody here. This is what I call carceral ableism, or in this case carceral sanism, and sanism um, is uh, the oppression that people, it's my timer, um, that people with um, mental health differences face. Um, or actually the imperative to be sane and the pressures uh, and the oppression that is caused by that, that is sanism. So carceral ableism or carceral sanism are the praxis and belief that people with disabilities need special or extra protections in ways that often expand and legitimate their further marginalization and incarceration. For example, mental health jails. Um, I can't tell you how much that is pervasive right now. Uh, you know, in recent meetings, um, that I've been at with people who do national kind of organizing against new facility, um, you know, under the banner of no new jails, no new prisons. A lot of these proposed prisons are uh, about um, creating either mental health jails or jails that will help with the opioid crisis so that people can like, you know, sleep it off or whatever. So it's this idea of right geo care. <laughs> It's about caring, we're getting into the caring thing. And it's again, care and profit or both. And so um, this is one example, drug courts, mental health courts, all of this is carceral ableism and carceral sanism. But I wanna end by saying that I th it might be clear to everybody in this room that you cannot cage people and say that you care. But I want you to also think about the, again, the mad and disabled knowledge that tells us that this is also about biopsychiatry itself. This is not about just what's happening in a cage. 
This is about the fact that um, people, um, uh, again, um, it's not just about what happens behind bars. It's that biopsychiatry is often the only form of treatment that we think of and the first course of action for people. So when we say treatment, what do we mean? And do we not mean assimilation? Uh, I think this is a really important question, and this is not just a question about what happens behind bars. And of course, uh, we have you know, the example of uh, community treatment orders, which is basically people are forced to take medication, so when pharmaceuticals and, and so on. But I'm talking even beyond when people are not forced to take the medications. Um, but also when we say defund police, hire social workers, right? W what does that mean? People need more mental health care and not criminalization. Is mental health not related to criminalization? Is it not related to surveillance? Is, does it not lead to further incarceration? Does it not lead people to be then incarcerated in a psychiatric unit? Is a psychiatric unit not carceral? It's not prison, that's true. Um, but is it not carceral? And this is also really important to think about in relation to um, uh, how it's related to racialization as well. So in conclusion, what a crip or mad of color critique of incarceration and abolition might give you I'm just repeating kind of the points um, I've been talking about for 40 minutes, is that um, it's not just about people who identify or are politicized as disabled people of color, although it's incredibly important to recognize the high numbers of people with disabilities who um, get shot by police, for example. But again, it's a framework that's based on the oppression of uh, people of color, particularly anti-blackness, and indigeneity, particularly through settler colonialism, it was built through that frame. Ableism is built on that. It's about centering the experiences of disablement and ableism and sanism in criminal, racial, and social justice movement. It's about understanding carceral ableism and carceral sanism. It's about understanding the disabling nature of incarceration itself and not blaming deinstitutionalization for it. It's about understanding that carcerality happens not just in prisons. And it's about understanding that disability and madness are fundamental to our understanding of incarceration and of abolition. The disability broadens our, concept, our conceptualization of incarceration and that criminalization is only one pathway leading to carcerality and surveillance. And criminalization is very tied to racialization, very tied to pathologization. And lastly, that we need a lot of collaboration and coalition building between disability, mad, anti-psychiatry, self-advocates, and prison and police abolitionists and scholars on the left. Thank you.
Dr Liet Ben-Moish's keynote address on the intersections of disability, justice and prison abolition at the Socialism 2022 conference held in Chicago in September 2022. Check out our podcast for the first part of that program. But that's all we've got time for on today's Accent of Women. This show is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.